1: Shalom and welcome to the forecast with Harry Enten. I'm that aforementioned gentleman, Mr. Harry Enten, here with my co-host Rebecca Berg. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Harry. And Ryan Nobles, who is still stuck in Florida with my cousin Myron, so I will be steering the ship today. But we do have Ryan joining us by the miracle of the telecommunication system. Ryan, are you there?
2: I am here. I'm a little disappointed that Myron hasn't invited me for any kind of, like, special dinner or maybe breakfast, uh, anything like that. I haven't, I haven't heard from Myron at all.
1: Well, you know, maybe you can go and watch a spring training game with him. He always used to drive us. Um, so now with the whole gang here, let's just dive right into it, right? We still have election overtime going on down in Florida. So, Ryan, what the heck is going on down there? Recount, 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 Right.
2: Yeah. And at the risk of, uh, you know, not making my investment in this story uh, worth it. Uh, you know, I, I wonder at the end of this, Harry, if this is going to be all worth the effort. Uh, you know, the, the margins uh, between these candidates in the governor and Senate race are still pretty big. You know, I mean, the Senate race is the closer one. It's about 12000 votes right now. There's never been a race in, in modern American history uh, in a statewide election anywhere that has overcome a vote margin that great in a recount effort. Um, You know, Democrats, I think, are still kind of pinning their hopes that there might be some sort of voting machine problem in habitually problematic Broward County. Uh, But I think a lot of this is just about noise. It's about making sure that I think probably a big swath of young and minority voters in Florida who are feeling pretty bummed about the election night results to show them that Florida Democrats and national Democrats are still invested in this race. That's why they're seeing this recount through. But I don't know if, Harry, you know more about the statistics of this, but from my read on it, being here on the ground, even talking to Democrats privately, I don't think anybody believes that when this is all over, the results are going to be any different than they were on election night.
3: And Rick Scott uh, projecting confidence, as I'm sure you could speak to, Ryan, but um, some reports that he is already talking with Mitch McConnell about his uh, first few days in the Senate, transitioning, hiring staff, talking to potential staff, that sort of thing. Um, basically acting like a senator-elect.
1: Yeah, I mean, j- just to get to the point that Ryan was setting at, go back to the 2000 recount, right? That was like 1,700 votes on election night going into the machine recount there. That was a 0.03 percentage point margin. Right now in the Senate race, the margin, if you were looking at a percentage points wise is 0.15 or five times as large of a lead for the Republicans in this case than the presidential race back in 2000 and the governor's race is obviously even wider than that so we'll have the machine recount in the, in the governor's race, right? It's 0.41 percentage points in the Senate race if at the end of the machine recount it's under 0.25 and it is at this point at 0.15 we'll have a hand recount of the under and over vote but as Ryan was saying you really need to be within like 0.007 as we were the case in the Minnesota Senate race back in 2008 when Norm Coleman's lead, went Adios Amigos and Al Franken, the Democrat was able to overtake him. This is just not in that area
3: yeah. right
2: now. Uh, I think the other point I would make about that too, Harry, is everybody wants to compare this to 2000. You know, in many ways, this is the bad sequel with me playing the role of Wolf Blitzer, which is a serious downgrade. Yeah. You don't have the beard. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think that there's so many differences between this and two thousand. I mean, you know, for every all the picking on of Florida that everybody's done over the past couple of weeks, their voting system is so much better than it was in two thousand. There are no hanging chads here. The machines are much better. Their laws are much clearer. There's a finite amount of time where this all has to be done. You know, Mark Elias and Republican lawyers, Ben Ginsburg, they're going to squabble over things in courts of law that I really think are on the margins of everything. I do, I mean, my sense of this having been down here, you know, I was down here an awful lot during the campaign itself, but I have not left since election night. My sense down here is that there will come a time when the voters of Florida have a clear idea as to who their statewide elected representatives are and i and i do think despite all of the hyperbole and Kind of the sky is falling here in florida i do think that there will be a clear understanding of who the winners are
3: but i just have to say what a weird story especially on the governor's side ryan you were with Gillum and his campaign on election night Uh, and aside from all the weird weather stuff that you guys were dealing with he conceded the election and then just in the past couple of days took back that concession amidst this recount effort um that was just bizarre can you tell us anything about that
2: yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. And talking to the Gillum folks kind of behind the scenes about this, you know, I, I think that they are, and he, he's even used this language, a lot more clear-eyed about where this thing is headed. I haven't talked to one staffer on the Gillum team who said, oh, yeah, listen, man, just let it all play out. We got a shot at winning this. They never thought that they had a shot at winning this. They knew that on election night. That hasn't changed. But what they do see here is an opportunity for Andrew Gillum to seize the national spotlight that has descended on Florida. I mean, CNN alone probably has 30 journalists in different capacities uh, covering this recount. You know, every time he gives a speech, and we expect him to give a speech perhaps every night of the week here uh, over the next couple of days, he's going to get on TV across the country. Uh, He's obviously uh, an excellent performer when it comes to politics and political speeches. So Democrats across the country are going to see him and even though he didn't win this race and i don't and we've talked about this before had he been the next governor of florida that probably automatically launched him to a stratosphere uh, within a certain number of potential 2020 and beyond candidates. But there's even the chance that maybe there's a Beto effect here for Andrew Gillum, that maybe people will start talking about him as a presidential candidate because he came so close in a state that's gone traditionally red. And maybe he could win Florida in 2020 uh, based on the the momentum that's generated out of Democrats kind of fighting the good fight with the recount effort.
1: I want to bring just briefly talk about the ballot design down in Broward, and then I want to kind of bring out the larger implications of this race. But Ryan and Rebecca, and we can go to Rebecca first and then Ryan, um, you know, it was my understanding as we sort of head into this recount that Mark Elias, who Ryan mentioned, who's the lead attorney for Bill Nelson, the Democratic uh, candidate for Senate there, has been arguing that that in fact, What's going on, there was a massive undervote in the Senate race versus the governor's race. Mm-hmm. And, and the he was ballot race, Right. Yes. He, was, mm-hmm. he was arguing that this was a machine malfunction, but it actually seems to be a, another human malfunction insofar is that the way that the ballot was designed, people couldn't find the Senate race. <laughs> right. And I'm just going to myself, what uh, – this does kind of remind me a little bit of 2000, but – how is this still a thing in this country where we can't seem to design freaking ballots?
3: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you—it's uh, difficult to describe uh, with only audio at our disposal for this podcast. But the design was just absolutely terrible. It was really easy to miss the Senate and House race on this particular ballot, and. On the one hand, you would think voters going in to vote would know that there is a Senate race on the ballot that they should be looking for. But on the other hand, I mean, this does seem like the sort of very basic thing that elections officials locally and on the state level should be able to handle. And they just completely miss the mark in this case. And I wonder why no one... Prior to Election Day, raise this as a potential concern? Because, as far as I know, no one did.
1: I I don't believe anyone did. And, Ryan, I I would just point out that, you know, this is like the one thing you have to do right, right? (laughs) It's like the one thing I know I have to do during the year is call my mother on Mother's Day. The one (laughs) thing you would think. That an elections official would have to do is design a ballot that people could actually find one of the marquee races. You
3: had one job. You had had one one, job. Exactly. You had one job. (laughs) Administer the election. Exactly. That's it.
1: Exactly. And I'm going to myself, how could they not do this one job?
2: Well, the only devil's advocate I'd play on that is, I, I think the one weird thing about elections is that everybody expects these election supervisors across the country to be perfect at their job. And unlike those of us, you know, we get to do our job every single day of the year. Right. I go on television and report the news. I write news stories. Harry, you're doing your forecast every day. Rebecca is writing and reporting every day. If you're an election official, you only get to do this once, maybe twice a year. Uh, You know, you know, the I, I think that's fraught with the possibility of screwing things up, you know, Everybody thought the idea of a hanging chad was a great idea until and put into practical application, it, it. you know, we discovered that it didn't. And with eight and a half million votes cast, I mean, that's really the size uh, of a country. Uh, I think there's those, these possibilities for th- things like this to slip through the cracks. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't figure this out. And it shouldn't mean that at this state you know, where we are in American politics that these problems shouldn't exist. But I guess I just feel a certain degree of empathy for these election workers because they just, you know, they only get one crack at it or two cracks at it every year. And on a, a race of this volume and with this tight of margins, I think there's bound to be problems under any circumstances. I mean, it it really is a massive undertaking. You know, in many ways, Harry, you know, we talk about the difficulty of polling. The reason that you do samples for polling instead of polling everyone in the world is because it's just physically impossible to do that. And what's an election? It's essentially a massive poll. And it's really hard to accurately determine what every single person is thinking because it requires so much work and effort and so many things can go wrong.
1: I I will point out to just sort of back up Ryan's point a little bit, you know, we saw that on election night as well. You know, this year was all about this live forecasting after my friend Nate Cohn at the Times did that needle back in mm-hmm. 2016 that sort of launched off and then in 2017 in the Alabama Special Senate. And we saw unfortunately that the needle was a little inoperational uh, for a little while. Was <laughs> I, it, was, it was, yeah, and, and my old friends at 538 there was a little bit going on where we at one point the Democratic odds dipped down to like 45% of the House. And the point that was brought up to me by Nate was that you only get one real shot at this, right? Yeah. It's like you can, you know, you can try and test the system as much as you can. And as someone who's worked on the CNN stuff, and we had, you know, the forecast on election night, and I was going down to DC and stress testing all this stuff. But you know, you can stress test as much as you want. But at the end of the day, you're really only one night. And if the data isn't there or something's a little wrong, everything can kind of fall
2: apart. Sure. It reminds me a lot of what it must be like to work on a space shuttle or the space program, right? You you cannot duplicate uh, a journey into space on Earth under any circumstance. And so they, you know, they try and test every possible which way that goes. But ultimately, when that rocket takes off, this is the first time we're trying this. And there's something that could go wrong that we haven't been able to predict yet.
3: Although fortunately here, there's no risk of explosion. Uh, But (laughs) I just want to underscore, though, that this is about more than just this single election in Florida. Uh, It's about this question of does your vote count, vote integrity, Uh, do people have faith ultimately in the electoral system? And we saw how that could be so easily undermined during the 2016 election with the Russian interference, with uh, people saying there was voter fraud, obviously that was more of a political tool, but ultimately all of this undermines people's faith in the electoral system. And so you worry about these reports of ballots that were stuck in a mail center in Florida, um, and you know this, this flawed ballot design in Broward County. All of these things chip away at people's faith in the voting system, and, and that ultimately does matter.
1: Right, and I think that with that idea about chipping away at sort of faith in the electoral system, I think we should discuss a little bit about Arizona, Unfortunately, that means that our dear colleague, Ryan, will be our dearly departed colleague. He has to go cover uh, more of the Florida recount as it occurs. So, Ryan, I want to wish you farewell, adieu, shalom.
2: All right. Uh, If each of you could say a prayer to whichever God you worship that I'm spending Thanksgiving with my family and not the crew at CNN in Tallahassee, I would really appreciate that.
3: We will do so, I'm sure our won't. Florida man.
1: I'm sure that crew won't take uh, your words personally and realize you just want to spend it with the children and the lovely wife. <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. So w- let's pick it up in terms of where we see things in Arizona right now.
3: Obviously a big loss for Republicans, a Republican seat uh, that's now going to the Democrat column. And this, We knew that this was going to be a tight race all along, that Democrats had a good chance to win. So no surprises here. Um, but maybe the biggest surprise that Martha McSally was able to close the gap uh, at the end of this race and actually could have won this thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, most of the polls throughout the year suggested that this was a prime Democratic pickup opportunity. They got kind of close at the end, although cinema was still ahead by mm-hmm. a point or two, depending on which polls you exactly looked at.
3: Now, you could argue that maybe it's not the worst thing in the world, ultimately, for McSally personally, because when John Kyle decides to leave, potentially in the first few months of this year, um, it's possible that the governor can name her to take over that Senate seat, John McCain's former Senate seat.
1: Yeah, I I think that just generally speaking, you know, it's so interesting how those late votes came in out west, right, between Nevada and Arizona, and how Mm -hmm. instead of having a net loss in the Senate for the Democrats of maybe four seats, and that would have boosted Republicans all the way up to 55, it ends up only being 53, a very, very different story than what was, we thought was occurring early on election night. And we can talk about that, election night surprises, and some other big takeaways. Stay tuned. back and we're going to head back down to the state of Florida speaking about election night surprises. Andrew Gillum led in pretty much all the polls. Rebecca, Grant, it was a a, a lead that kind of was declining the closer we got to election day. But I think if there was one result that really shocked me on the evening is that he lost. And while he lost by a small margin, it wasn't like one vote.
3: Absolutely. I mean, the way strategists were talking about this race in the lead up to election day was that it was a done deal that Gillum was winning this. Uh, A lot of people were considering the Senate race kind of in that same category, uh, in part because they thought there would be some effect from the governor's race boosting Bill Nelson. And ultimately, it just didn't happen for Gillum. Part of it I think we saw the Republican attacks and the President's attacks on Gillum Working, The president, of course, has a huge megaphone. He was using it to attack Gillum uh, with some really questionable attacks, I might add, calling him a thief, for example. Uh, there were reports about the FBI investigation that Gillum personally had not been a target of, but some of his associates had been. Those attacks started to sink in. Gillum entered the race as something of a political unknown and opposition research still works in most races. Maybe not against President Trump in 2016, (laughs) but in conventional races, attacks, opposition research, spending, those things all still work. And I think we saw the effects of that in this race in the lead up to election day.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, this felt kind of a little bit like deja vu all over again, to quote Yogi Berra, insofar as you had polls in Florida showing the Democrat ahead, as we did in 2016 and it just didn't happen and mm-hmm. yeah the polls were close but as was pointed out to me when you have so many polls showing something and they're using you know different potential electorates it really does mean a little bit more and it felt like lucy with the football a little bit going on <laughs> in florida that they just couldn't quite do it and you know bringing it out a little more broadly was this all this talk about historical candidacies right Andrew Mm -hmm. Gillum in Florida, Stacey Abrams just in northern Georgia. And while that vote is still being counted, some of the provisional ballots, it doesn't seem like Brian Kemp will end up falling below that 50 percent mark in order to ensure a runoff come December. And it just seemed like in some ways this historical evening fell a little short in some ways.
3: Yeah, and I don't think you should discount the Trump effect in these races as well. President Trump went to Florida to campaign. He went to Georgia. um, And much in the same way as we saw in redder states in Senate races in Indiana and Missouri. His supporters came home and actually turned out to the polls to support him, in essence, by supporting these candidates. And when you have races that are so close, so marginal, uh, every one of those Trump supporters made a huge difference.
1: Uh, and I think that's right. If you look at the exit polls, you can basically tell whether or not the Republican candidate was going to win depending on what Donald Trump's approval rating was in that state. Absolutely. So in Florida, it was above fifty percent. Won there. Indiana above fifty percent. Won there. Missouri above fifty percent. Won there. Nevada below fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Lost there. And I, I I think that you know if you just broaden it out, everything is becoming so about presidential politics these days to a degree that you know yeah, John Tester held on in Montana, and yeah. Joe Manchin held on in West Virginia, but even in those states, the Republicans closed pretty strong at the
3: end. Right, and they're really the exception to the rule, right? I mean, they've been able to carve out an identity in their states, but that's getting harder and harder to do. I mean, you just look at someone like Claire McCaskill, who has a long history in Missouri politics and had carved out a reputation of her own uh, and still uh, voters were not able to separate her and her identity from the partisan label yeah,
1: exactly and i believe when i was looking at the exit polls, i have a piece up or had a piece up on cnn.com you can visit it um, wow. it's, it's a website right who knew it existed <laughs> do, do, do. Uh, cool. there you go exactly type that's, type that's it. me typing that that's you typing with a nice little theme song too i love theme songs but it, you know, if you look at the House vote, and you look at how people voted, depending on whether or not they approved or disapproved of the job the president was doing this, I think I pointed this out on my little solo pod, which was that the approval rating was more highly correlated with voting for the incumbent Republican Party, and the disapproval rating was more highly uh, correlated with voting for the opposition party than in any midterm since records are basically kept with exit polls wow. since 1982.
3: That's really interesting.
1: And, and, and I would just sort of further point out that, you know, using another election night surprise, we'll kind of jump around, is Bobby Ojeda down in West Virginia, three right? Now
3: going to be a presidential candidate. Right. By the way, uh, I, 2018, the best launching pad for 2020. I,
1: I, and everyone, and we'll get into it, running for president coming in 2020. But, you know, this was this ancestral Democratic district. We covered it on this pod, mm-hmm. I do believe. And, you know, a lot of Democrats were there. He kind of came out, was very, very aggressive, almost sort of convinced he was going to win just by his personality. Right. And at the end of the day, he lost by double digits. And the second district in West Virginia that no one had an eye on with Alex Mooney, the incumbent Republican there, was actually closer because it was slightly more... Democratic on the presidential level.
3: Yeah, and a number of those surprises on the House side uh, on election night. But but before we get into some of those, can we just settle once and for all the question of was this a Democratic wave?
1: Oh, I think it's a great question that we can sort of, sort of settle. All
3: right, let's I, settle this.
1: What do you think? Do you think it was a Democratic wave?
3: I think it was. We talk about 2006 as a Democratic wave election. Um, And Democrats are, I believe, netting more seats in this election cycle with the votes still being tabulated and the ones coming in after election night uh, than they did in 2006. Look, clearly our partisan divide is widening, deepening, whatever you want to call it. But, I mean, in the toss-up elections, the suburban districts that were on the edge, they flipped and Democrats won. I think you call that a wave. The wave stopped at the edge of the suburbs, maybe, but there was didn't, didn't there was a make, wave. Maybe there was out. a red wall at the edge of the suburbs, but there was, there was a wave.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to that. I, I think if you're looking to point out whether it's a wave, look, I think at this point, based upon the votes that are still out to be counted in California and Maine, too, with their ranked choice voting, it looks to me like Democrats will get a net gain of between 35 and 40 seats, probably towards the upper end of that range. You look at the House popular vote, you compare that to past waves like 94, 2006, 2010. That You look at that House popular vote, you see Democrats probably going to win between 7 and 8 percentage points. That's right in that wave category with the rest of those. Absolutely. And it was the largest net gain for Democrats in the House since Watergate.
3: Since, Since Watergate. That's huge. That's
1: huge. Yes, the Senate was a little bit different, right, where Republicans were able to gain two seats. But remember, look at that electoral map. Look at what they were up against. I mean, going into Missouri, which Donald Trump won by nearly 20 points, going into Indiana, where Donald Trump won by nearly 20 percentage points. I think the only sort of issue that I would take with the idea of a wave would be the Florida Senate race where obviously Bill Nelson at this point looks like he's going to fall a little bit short. And that's supposed to be a swing state, but maybe Florida is not such a swing state anymore.
3: Right. But I do feel like our view of this election was colored by the Senate map, which was unusually favorable to Republicans to begin with. And then the early returns on election night, it didn't immediately look like this was necessarily going to be a wave. But as the night developed, and especially with some of these close races that are now being decided after Election Day, I think clearly if we had had all this information on election night all at once, it would have been really evident to us that this was a wave. Hey,
1: I, I think you bring up a very good point. I want to just talk about it briefly for a second There is, I think that the way we report on election nights in the past don't necessarily work anymore. because Democrats are doing so well in those suburban districts in places like Texas, in places like Kansas, in places like California, where they picked up a slew of seats, Mm -hmm. and it's just that those places closed their polls a little bit later. Right, things have just gotten better and better for Democrats as we've gotten further and further away from election night. Yeah, and I think that this is a commentary on what we need to be doing going forward. Is yes, counting the votes as they come in is important, and that's part of any election night. Right, but I think it's also important that we are able to explain to the audience that what you're seeing isn't necessarily what's indicative of what will be occurring at the end. And it's oftentimes difficult to get people to believe something they can't actually see and what a mathematical formula is suggesting, but the mathematical formulas in this case, tooting my own horn a little bit, ended up being pretty good.
3: But just like ESPN doesn't go cover a Bills game and then tune out after the first quarter or after the first half, it's sort of the same thing. I think for uh, the risk that we sometimes fall into is uh, covering the first half like it's the whole game when it comes to election night coverage,
1: right? And and speaking of the first half, the first half of the Donald Trump presidency is coming a little bit to a close right now. Wow. a little sad um, in some sense. It's just gone by so fast. I know, right? It, it's 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 gone. It, it you know, there's so many memories between <laughs> so many interesting White House press conferences and. And tweets, that will be memorable to everyone and certainly be written up in a history textbook <laughs> come, you know, 2100. Can we
3: get a One Shining Moment montage?
1: One shining moment. <laughs> Luther Vandross can come in here and kind of sing it. That's for listeners who don't know, One Shining Moment is the NCAA tournament um, basketball tournament, the Final Four, they play always a montage and like the great Luther Vandross. And some years it was Jennifer Hudson, both fantastic voices. Oh, wow. um, some the-
3: of some of our more casual listeners might actually believe I I am a an avid sports fan listening to this.
1: Well, you know, depending on our listenership, uh, you may be more of an avid sports fan than someone. Depends how nerdy is. We love you nerds but you are a bunch (laughs) of nerds.
3: So, should we get back to the big surprises? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, uh, Give me me two more big surprises that you kind of saw. I'll give one, and then we can head in and just kind of preview 2020 a little bit and what we kind of saw from the night, which gives us an understanding, perhaps, a little bit of a little tea leaf that we can read into it.
3: Okay, so I feel like there are tiers of surprises here. The huge, out-of-nowhere surprises, I would put Oklahoma 5 in that category. Where did that come from? Part of it is, I mean, I think Mike Bloomberg and his uh, team can get some credit for that one because they spent $400,000 in that race in the last week of the election. Um, So that could have been a decisive...
1: Yeah, and and Correct me if I'm wrong, that is the district around Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. This is another suburban district. You know, we're kind of picking them out, right? What's the pattern? And this is, I believe, the most well-educated district in that state. Bloomberg comes in, kind of is able to dump all that money. And people wonder whether or not money matters in politics. It does seem to have mattered there. It does
3: matter, especially in these races where this one wasn't getting a ton of national attention. And so they were able to go in and make a really big difference at a critical moment. Um, I personally have been very interested in the Virginia 7 race. I was down in that district the weekend before election day. And of course it was very close, but Spanberger, the Democrat, was the underdog going into Dave Election Day. Dave, right. Dave Dave Brath's district, uh, traditionally a very Republican district for going back decades, as you know. And that was I think a great example of something we saw across the country this election, which was the result of excellent Democrat recruiting on the House side. Spanberger, a CIA veteran, um, Someone who is just a really compelling candidate, and made a great case for herself, and you see the result of that now. She's going to Congress.
1: Yeah, and, and have, you, you, you know you're speaking about um, Virginia and good recruitment. What about Elaine Loria over in the second district? Scott Taylor. Yes. Scott Taylor was leading in most of those grant that there was some question about some questionable activity with getting a third party candidate on the ballot there, I do believe. But that kind of came a little bit, to me, was a little bit more of a surprise than even the Dave Brat district.
3: Yeah, I mean, you could de- you could definitely make that argument, although Taylor had his own sort of personal scandal issues uh, with the voting uh, petitions. But um, nevertheless, that was also a big surprise. And then you look at Illinois, the Lauren Underwood mm. race with Hulk Grin. I mean, that was To me also a very big surprise. Across the map, um, it's pretty clear that Democrats have taken back the suburbs in a very big way in the excerpts.
1: You know, and I think we're kind of picking out sort of the common theme, and it really is that Democrats did very well in these suburban and Mm -hmm. urban areas that are well-educated. Another one that is in our backyard right now, as we're recording in New York, is down in Staten Island with Max Rose
3: Huge. And again, just a great candidate and a great fit for that district.
1: Raised a lot of money. Every yes. single time I was watching WNBC, which is the local channel, uh, local NBC station in New York, there was always an ad for Max Rose every single second. And this was the only completely urban district in the country, as defined by the census, that had a Republican member of Congress, and he's gone. Right. And I, you know, you just, it, right now, Democrats have taken back the suburbs. And they are making certain places that weren't competitive before more competitive. If, if Democrats are losing a state like Ohio, they have the potential to gain in a place like Arizona, where there are a lot of suburban areas. Even in a place like Texas, if you see, you know, the 7th, the 32nd district, longtime Republican incumbents there in the 7th with John Culberson, the 32nd with Pete Sessions, who didn't even have a Democratic opponent in 2016, goes right. down to Colin red it's going to be a very interesting map sort of heading into 2020 in terms of where Democrats are going to play and whether or not it's just the midwest that where they're trying to make inroads in or just florida or whether or not they're truly going to try and expand and make a real play in a state like texas and a state like arizona
3: right and i mean imagine what this could have looked like if the economy were not good this could have been an absolute bloodbath where we agree this was a wave um i mean if in 2020 the president's approval hasn't improved and the economy is not doing as well as it's doing now, just think of what we could see um, in terms of Republican losses in that scenario.
1: I I think that's exactly right. The Republicans had a strong economy going for them, but yet Donald Trump's approval rating could not get above 45% in the exit poll, which pretty much matched the um, pre-election polls, which did a pretty good job of getting the president's approval rating right. He doesn't walk on water, as I like to say. Mm -hmm. He's not electoral Jesus, to use an old saying that we've used on this <laughs> pod before, but what other lessons would you sort of say that you picked out from this, perhaps some tea leaves that give us an idea about 2020, either for the general election matchup or for the Democratic primaries, who they're kind of thinking about will be their nominee?
3: Right, and, so, and I think the operative question is really what Democratic voters are going to want in their candidate, what style, because on policy, most of these people are going to be pretty much Consistent, except for someone maybe like Congressman, former Congressman, now John Delaney uh, of Maryland, who's very much like a fiscal conservative, social liberal um, sort of candidate. But uh, for the most part, I mean, most of these people are already on the Medicare for All train. Most of these people, policy-wise, are pretty much on the same page. Um, so it's really, it really comes down to style. Do you want someone uh, like? Michael Avenatti, for example. (laughs) Or, um, you know, some of these more uniting candidates like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, that sort of thing.
1: Do you think that any of them came out stronger because of this cycle than they went kind of going in?
3: That's a really good question. Um, I mean, you could argue that from the perspective of uh, media exposure, someone like Beto actually is a lot better off. Um, I don't think anyone would have talked about him as a potential presidential candidate, and now he's one of the names being talked about pretty consistently. But I don't know, was there a standout to you?
1: I don't know if there was a standout to me. I I, I will say, you know, Beto is kind of that, he's certainly getting mentioned for 2020 now that he doesn't actually have a job, we'll see. Right. I I, I think obviously the fact that women candidates did so well um, in the Democratic primaries, I think that, uh, you know, I would still think that if I were making a top 10 list, and in fact, we have made a top 10 list, that there would be a number of women. One who I throw out who, you know, could talk for, let the president kind of do his own thing, and then she stays on the ball. And if we're talking about the Midwest, is Amy Klobuchar. Now, I know that a lot of. These- she
3: killed it in her reelection. That map was like a dream for any Democrat running in the Midwest.
1: She won by a larger margin in Minnesota than Liz Warren won by in Massachusetts.
3: That's incredible.
1: And I don't need, I'm fairly sure if you're listening to this podcast, you know that Minnesota is much more towards the center than Massachusetts is. I I, I don't know. I think that she's someone that we should keep an eye out on if she's going to run. She obviously is right next door to Iowa. Mm -hmm. She's a woman. She kind of fits that profile. I know that there are a lot of people inside of Washington who seem to be very skeptical about her for reasons that they have, but I would keep an eye out on
3: her. Yeah, and then I think that question comes back to style though, right? Will voters want someone who's more electric on the stump, sort of a, an Obama redux? Or could they be satisfied with someone uh, like Amy Klobuchar, who I would argue has a more subdued style? Um, that's not to say boring. But, uh, you know, it's, it's hard when there are so many people running and there will be many of them as we've talked about. How do you differentiate yourself? How do you stand out in that crowded field? Uh, and oftentimes it is by being that electric, uh, magnetic sort of personality.
1: Yeah. And, and so as we're wrapping up here, just two quick things, number one. Any surprises that you might think of for 26, uh, 2020? six, twenty twenty? I'm going backwards in time. I want to go forward. It's back to the future. <laughs> oh not Do back not to take the us
3: back, Harry. <laughs> um,
1: please God. Been,
3: been there, done that.
1: Been there, done that. Um, any surprise candidates that we're not thinking of that maybe your reporting has indicated to you heading into twenty twenty? Someone we might keep an eye out on for
3: twenty twenty. I mean, we have sort of forgotten about the billionaires running, right? Mm. So Howard Schultz. Mike Bloomberg, who obviously had a very big role in uh, the midterm elections, although behind the scenes, uh, someone like Tom Steyer, who might be running. I mean, what impact do they have on the rest of the field, and are they able to break through? Uh, when we've seen how powerful populism can be uh, from a campaign perspective, and then of course, I mean, I would uh, sort of put the governors in the same category because we don't give them a lot of national attention in the off season. Um, but you have people like Steve Bullock of Montana, Hickenlooper of Colorado, that we really haven't been paying attention to, uh, and now are, they're going to get their moment in the sun.
1: So basically, we have no idea, um, and they're going to That's be- That's right. We're going to basically have nine billion people running, but I, I think that we're going to have plenty of time to discuss that going forward, And I believe believe that we are coming to an end. But
3: we're out of time for today. We're (laughs) we're out of time for today.
1: Um, There will be no trivia, but we do have a listener question. It comes from at Mike Hudson Sucks. Look, he wrote the username. I didn't write it. I don't necessarily condone. But in any event, the question was, what did you think of your model? What changes do you... WISH YOU HAD MADE OR WOULD YOU LIKE TO MAKE FOR THE NEXT ele- next CYCLE? WOW. Um, GOOD QUESTION. I- IT IS A SOLID QUESTION FROM M- MIKE HUDSON, WHO ALSO HAS A WEIRD SYMBOL IN HIS NAME. I-, I-, <laughs> I THINK THAT, NUMBER ONE, THE MODEL DID WHAT IT WAS SUPPOSED TO DO, RIGHT? IT GOT US IN THE GENERAL AREA. WE WERE ALWAYS LOOKING AT A DEMOCRATIC GAIN IN THE HOUSE BETWEEN 30 AND 40 SEATS. That's what ended up happening. Obviously, some individual seats didn't necessarily go the way we thought, but that, of course, we knew was going to happen. Otherwise, if we knew which way everything was going to go, we wouldn't even need to hold an election. In the Senate, we had Republicans winning 52 seats. It looks like they're going to win 53, so pretty good there. Um, Not perfect. There were obviously some races where things went a little awry. Um, Certainly that was the case in the Senate where we saw Democrat, Claire McCaskill, lose by a wider margin than expected. The same thing, of course, occurring in Indiana where Joe Donnelly lost by a wider margin than expected. And then in Ohio where the Democrat, Rich Cordry in the gubernatorial race, lost by a wider margin than expected. He was actually perhaps slightly favored to win in those final few days. I I, I think that if there are some changes that I would want to make is uh, number one, uh, you know the models were put together pretty hastily, given when I came to CNN and sort of the amount of time that we had to do them in. Uh, so maybe a little <laughs> bit more time to be spent on them. I also wonder about specifically the way that the models were visualized um, on the website and sort of how you know are we going to talk about vote margins? Are we going to talk about the you know how much is the Republican winning versus the Democrat winning? How I think to me is the bigger question: how are we displaying and explaining to the audience what the margin of error is. Do we want to look at a probability? Is it an 80% chance versus a 20% chance? Is it merely a point estimate and then a margin of error around that? I think that these are the types of questions that I'm most struggling with going into 2020, and they're one thing for the general election, and they're another thing for the primary election where I don't think we really even think about vote margins very much. How are we gonna display that You got person one, person two, person three on the Democratic side when there are going to be about 750 people running.
3: Right. And then there will be delegates in the equation, too, so that'll be exciting.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. But just to broaden it out very briefly, you know, the polling was good. Nationally it was good. It was solid. It gave us a very good understanding of where it was going. I do still wonder about some of those Midwestern states like Indiana, like Ohio. Like Missouri, which I'm going to say is in the Midwest, although some people it's might. It's debatable. It's debatable. Uh, where the Republic- Missouri
3: is SEC now. So. There,
1: there you go. Uh, another another sports reference. Um,
3: <laughs> Thank you for listening to ESPN.
1: There you go. Um, but I, I think that sort of is there something going on there with polling errors? And if, in fact, there is, whether we're weighting up non-college-educated whites enough in those samples is something that I think we're going to be able to look at in a uh, 2019 and 2020, because I don't think we can afford another polling error in which the Republican candidates underestimated. They may they they may come after me if that's in fact the case.
3: (laughs) So overall, good performance. I think we'll keep you, Harry.
1: I I am not getting fired. (laughs) This podcast will continue. But we are going to take a little bit of a break. And with that,
3: (laughs) from our family to yours, and
1: from our family, to thank
3: you for listening. Thank
1: you for listening. And a thank you to my colleague, Rebecca Berg. What is your Twitter handle?
3: At Rebecca G. Berg.
1: Rebecca G. Berg and Ryan Nobles, who has a Twitter handle as well, um, at Ryan Nobles. That sounds about right, <laughs> that right?
3: That sounds right.
1: Yeah. And a special thanks to our producers, Amy Eason and Emma Soslowski, who do a fantastic job and was able to put this podcast together so beautifully today. As and
3: edit do. out all of our and random asides.
1: And edit out all of the crazy thoughts that I have. Just a few of them were able to seep in. In any event, we'll see you on the flip side come the other side of the holiday season. We're back. Does that work for you? Can I do that?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare I had.
1: <laughs> welcome back, and that's especially to Mr. Cotter, who is just joining us for the first time. In any event, coming back. Welcome back, Cotter. It's a TV show. <laughs> just let it
3: happen. <laughs> this is the kind of edginess our listeners crave. <laughs> I was just going to say. Right, you can do whatever you want. All right. right.
1: No, no rule. No, no, no.